Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. In in April of 1947, Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in uh, Major League Baseball. Now, during that time, baseball was segregated like much of the United States There was Major League Baseball, which was uh, for white players, and then there was what's called the Negro Leagues, which were for players of color, and famous players like Satchel Paige played in the Negro Leagues. Uh, But Branch Rickey was the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and Rickey had this idea for a great experiment to integrate Major League Baseball. And so he joined as manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers five years previous and began to slowly and quietly implement this plan to be the manager that desegregates baseball, and he identified Jackie Robinson as the player to do it. Now, there's several films about Jackie Robinson's life. One came out in the 50s, and it's called uh, The Jackie Robinson Story. One came out just about eight years ago, and it's called 42, after Jackie Robinson's number of 42. But in both of those movies, it portrays the conversation between Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson. And Branch Rickey says, if you step onto the field as a black man in a white man's game, here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be insulted. Pitchers are going to throw the ball at your head. Uh, People are going to punch you as they run by the bases, and they will try and step on your feet. And what are you going to do, Jackie? What are you going to do, Jackie Robinson? And Jackie Robinson says, do you want a player who is just going to sit there and not have the guts uh, to do anything? And Branch Rickey looks at him and says, no, no, I'm looking for a player that's so tough that he doesn't fight back that he doesn't fight back. So, Jackie, Ricky says, what are you going to do if someone punches you in the cheek? And Robinson thinks for a moment, and he says, well, Mr. Ricky, I've got two cheeks. I've got two cheeks. Now, it turns out that Jackie Robinson's mother, Molly Robinson, was a devout Christian, and he had got that saying, two cheeks from Jesus' teaching, turn the other cheek. Uh, Molly Robinson was a devout Christian who had moved the family from Georgia to California to escape the poverty that they were living in. And uh, Rachel Robinson there on the left, that's Jackie's wife, she said that the most influential person in her husband's life was his mother, Molly Robinson. Jackie would later say she had faith and trust in God and she believed that God wants human beings to work and spread for freedom and equality, which is rightfully theirs, even if they must suffer because they do this. And suffer Robinson did, but Jackie Robinson in April of 1947 broke the color barrier when he put on number 42 as a Brooklyn Dodger and stepped onto the field. And 15 or so years later, Jackie Robinson was elected into the Hall of Fame.
But it's interesting that phrase uh, where he says, I've got two cheeks. What happens if you get punched in the cheek, Jackie Robinson? He says, well, Mr. Ricky, I've got two cheeks. I mean, that comes from our, our text today where Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And now most people have heard that phrase, turn the other cheek. But two things about it. One is that we're not really sure what it means because it's become so commonplace in our culture. So we just say, turn the other cheek without really even knowing what Jesus was trying to teach us to do or how he wants us to live. The second thing is we might feel a little resistant to turn the other cheek because that phrase has been used to silence people who shouldn't be silenced. In other words, when someone is a victim, some people have said, well, just turn the other cheek as if it's their responsibility to fix the situation, as if turning the other cheek will fix all the problems. And so some people might even be resistant to hearing that because it's been used to silence them in the face of evil. Well, just because it's been wrongly used doesn't mean we should disuse it. We should find the right way to use it. We should find what Jesus actually means by it. We should find out how Jesus is calling us to live as his followers when he says, turn the other cheek. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at two things from this passage The first is we're going to ask the question, how is Jesus calling us to live? But then secondly, we're going to say, what is Jesus calling us to believe in order that we can live that way? How is Jesus calling us to live? What is he calling us to believe in order for us to live that way? This passage starts off in Matthew 5, verse 38. In verse 38, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament's law of retribution, also known as, in Latin as the lex talionis, the law of retribution. And the law of retribution was implemented so that there would be just punishments for the crime. Now, how does the human heart work? If you punch me, I punch you back twice and harder so that you never hit me again. If you steal from me, I steal back from you, but I take more so you know not to do it again. If you take one of my teeth, I take the whole layer on top so that you'd never do that again. That's how we think as human beings. And if you don't believe it, watch your children. Watch them when, when, start, when blows start to flow. You will see that, that they believe this. But what happened in ancient Israel was that vengeance could rule. In other words, we have to figure out a way to have a just punishment for a crime. So they implemented the law of retribution, which says that the punishment for a crime can fit the crime, but it can't exceed the crime. If a tooth is lost, a tooth can be taken, but not two teeth. And this was really clarifying for judges in ancient Israel because it helped them see what punishment is fair and just. But Israel began to take this law of retribution as a right of retribution. In other words, rather than clarifying what uh, punishments would be so that you don't go too far, the people of God began to see this as their right for revenge. And so Jesus confronts us. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But then he goes on in verse 39, and he says, but I tell you, don't 
resist an evildoer. Don't resist an evildoer. Now, as followers of Jesus, we're called to resist sin. We're called to resist Satan. We're called to resist injustice. Uh, But we're not called to resist an evildoer. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, here's what he says. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, I want you to picture this. Most people are right-handed. If you're going to hit someone on the right cheek, you don't hit them like this. You hit them like this. This is not violence, so to say. This is a deliberate public insult, an act of humiliation. We have a term for it in our culture, and I'm not going to say it, but The idea is that you have calculated how you are going to publicly humiliate someone else. And you're going to slap them across the right cheek with the back of your right hand to publicly humiliate them, to belittle them, to disrespect them. This is an intentional insult meant to belittle someone else. And you can imagine, as the hit happens, if someone were to hit me on my right cheek, I would turn this way, and then to turn the other cheek, I would have to look back at them and turn this way, forcing them to use their left hand to slap me across the other face. Now, you can imagine, this would not feel good, but it's primarily not about violence, but rather someone publicly humiliating someone else because they're mad at them. What would happen if you were publicly humiliated in that way, and you turned and you opened yourself back up for another humiliation. Well, it would be incredibly confusing for the other person. Surprising. Well, I just belittled this person publicly, and they turned back around, and rather than slapping me back or running away, they opened themselves up to receive further humiliation. It would be incredibly confusing for the person who slapped. Now, Here's an example. Uh, Tom Skinner is a famous Christian who wrote a great book called How Black is the Gospel. Skinner's story is that he grew up in Harlem and was part of a gang called the Harlem Lords. When he came to Christ, he left the gang, but he continued to play football with them. In other words, he was officially no longer part of the game, but he was still their friends. And when he would play football with them, they were rough with him. They would tackle him just a little bit harder to humiliate him. Uh, They would say things to him to publicly insult him because they did not like the fact that he had left their group. But when they did that to Skinner, as a follower of Jesus, rather than humiliating them right back, rather than belittling them, rather than going right back at them, Skinner would get up, whatever they just did to him, and he would say, I love you anyway. I love you anyway. Turning the other cheek is not about saying, it's not about letting someone be violent against you. Turning the other cheek is refusing to humiliate someone who has just humiliated you. How does the human heart work? If someone says something cutting to me and belittles me publicly, for my honor, I've got to say something back, right? Jesus says no. Jesus says no. Jesus says turn the other cheek. 
offer a surprising way to respond when the world is used to slap for slap, tooth for tooth. Turn yourself open to them and offer yourself again. That's a high ethic. That's a high calling and a way to live. But there's more. In verse 40, Jesus says this. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Now, the, the, the background for this particular, uh, this particular scenario is probably that someone owed someone else money, and they took him to court, and because they couldn't pay, they had to give up some clothing. Now, in those days, clothing was incredibly valuable because people only had maybe one pair of shoes and maybe three garments of clothing at most. And most men had an inner shirt and then an outer cloak cloak or coat. And the shirt kind of covered their chest, and the coat would keep them warm at night. In fact, many people used it as a blanket. And so what would happen is, legally, you were allowed to take someone's shirt, their inner garment, but if you took their outer garment, you had to give it back by sundown because they needed something to keep them warm in those cold nights. They needed a blanket. And so what is Jesus saying? If you're forced to go to court, go the extra mile here to set things right. They take your shirt, go ahead and give them your coat as well. Now, imagine the response of the other person. They say, I legally have your shirt, and you say, here, go ahead and have this as well. What might be going on in their minds as literally a man would be declothing most of his, most of his robe in order to say, you're more important than me? It, can you sense what it would be like for the other person? It's almost humiliating for the other person to be given more than they asked for in order for you to say, I really want to make things right with you. But it goes further. Verse 41, you heard me just say, go the extra mile. That's exactly what Jesus says next. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. This refers to a situation in their culture where a Roman soldier who was the occupying force in God's holy land, the occupying force in Israel, they had the right as a soldier to go up to anyone and say, I'm tired. I would like you to carry my sword and my shield for a mile. And legally, the person had to carry it for one mile. Now, most of us could probably walk a mile somewhere between 15 and 30 minutes, but with a heavy Roman shield and a heavy Roman sword, it might slow us down. So what does Jesus say? When you get to that first mile and the soldier says, good riddance to you, you surf. Thanks for serving me. Now get lost. You say, I'd like to go another mile. How confusing. How surprising this is. What a weird way to interact with someone. Now Jesus is not saying that the injustice of the soldier is right. He's telling us what to do in the midst of great injustice when we cannot change anything. In all these examples, he's leading us to something, and that is to be someone who overcomes evil, not with retaliation, not with revenge, not with retribution, but to overcome evil with good, to do good to those 
who are against us. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, what's it say? Feed him. If he is thirsty, come on. Give him some to drink, for in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with what? With good, but conquer evil with good. In all three of these examples, Jesus is saying the way to live life, the way I'm calling you to live as a follower of Jesus is not to be retaliatory. It's not to seek revenge. It's not to go tooth for tooth and eye for eye. It's not the way of retribution. It's the way of overcoming evil with good. And what I love about that is that Jesus isn't pretending what's happening is okay. It is evil. But how do you overcome evil? Not with revenge, but with good. But you'll notice that Jesus is pushing us beyond the limits of what we feel comfortable with. If you take seriously what he says, there's no way you're not comfortable. Because he's not just pushing us towards non-retaliation. He's pushing us to go beyond the limits of what human love normally does. He's pushing us to have an unlimited limit for love. Limitless love. Look what he says in verse 42. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Okay. Jesus is not saying here that if I come up to you and I say, I'd like all your money, you have to go, well, Jesus says I have to give all my money. That's not the point. What's the context? Well, the context is uh, a place in court. Someone's trying to sue you. The context is a Roman soldier who's forcing you to do things. The context is someone who's trying to humiliate you. And what Jesus is trying to tell us is that our limit for generosity usually goes to our family and our friends and those who are nice to us. But Jesus is calling us to go beyond the normal limits of what humans go when it comes to generosity. Not just to be generous with those who can repay us, not to be generous just with those who can give us something back, but to be generous even with our enemies. To be generous even with our enemies. That's what Jesus is leading us to. See, in verse 43, what he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the Jews in that day had read in the Old Testament that God says, love your neighbor, right? We quoted that this morning, love your neighbor. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, hate your enemy. But they thought, well, God really loves us, and we're supposed to love our neighbor, and God really loves our people. So he must mean we're supposed to love our neighbor and then hate anyone who's really not our neighbor, uh, hate anyone who's outside of God's people. 
So Jesus says, you've heard it said those things, but guess what? The Old Testament says love your neighbor, but it does not say hate your enemy. Jesus goes in verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The Greek word there for love is agape, probably one of the most famous Greek words that we've heard before. Agape is an unconditional, self-sacrificial, unlimited, God-like love. It's not a feeling. It's a decision. It's an action. It's a commitment of the will that normally human beings give to those who can repay them or love them back. But Jesus says, no, agape love is in itself by nature an unlimited love, a love that goes beyond friendship, beyond family, to those who are evil, to those who are enemies, to those who would persecute you. So here's a question for you. Where are the limits of your love? Where are the limits of your love? We we all have them. It's not like we have good Christians who don't have uh, limits on their love and then bad Christians. We all, ha- we all have them as human beings. We all have limits to our love. So where are yours? Can you identify where you've stopped in your willingness to love? Stephen McAlpine wrote a book called Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. And he tells this story about a Christian family who wanted to foster uh, foster children, and they went through this agency, and the agency wasn't Christian, and when the agency found out that this Christian family had a biblical view of sexuality and a historic view of marriage, they would not let them uh, be foster parents. Now, a lot of Christians would rise up, let's go to culture wars, let's do this, right? Let's, Let's make our voices heard, but that's not what happened. Uh, Stephen McAlpine's church decided we're going to lean in, but we're going to lean in with love. And so their church donated hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hot meals to foster parents that were being served by that agency. In other words, you've wronged us, but we're going to do good to you. There's a limit to our being involved with you, but there's no limit in how we're going to serve you. And they actually kept applying and saying, we want to have people in our church be foster parents. And eventually they did. Eventually there were people who who served that agency by taking children into their home. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Lifeway Research says that 82% of people pray for their friends and family. 74% of people will pray for their own problems and their own challenges, but only 37%, more than than half lower, only 37% will pray for their enemies. But yet here it is. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word.
All that, that's a hard call that Jesus issues to us. It's, it's a hard call to live this way. But, but part of it is understanding it's not just a, an act of the will to live this way. There's really some things that we're called to believe in order to live this way. In other words, we have to think a certain way about things. We have to understand things in a certain way in our heart before we're actually empowered to live this way. And the first thing that we have to understand is the image of God. It's the image of God in every human being. No matter what their skin color is, no matter how full or empty their wallet is, no matter how much power they have or don't have, everyone is created in God's image and then therefore worthy of dignity and respect, even those people who are your enemies. Uh, We have to understand that Our enemies are worthy of respect and dignity. And do you notice that even in Jesus' teaching about how his disciples are to interact with their enemies, there's this this hint of wanting to serve them. I have a shirt, but I'll give you my coat as well. (laughs) Right? There's this sense of seeing what they might need and reaching out to them. Like Paul said, if they're thirsty, give them a cup of water. If they're hungry, give them something to eat. Why? Why? Because, though they know it or not, they are made in the image of God. And so are you. So are you. You are made in the image of God. And I think that there's something interesting happening here in the text. When Jesus gives these examples of how to respond to enemies, where you're showing them a new way to be human. As someone who has dignity, and respect, who is being remade into the image of Christ. When someone dishonors you and you don't dishonor them back, you're showing the image of God, the renewed image of God in yourself to them. As I was even preaching that section and watching you guys react, I'm like, they don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with it either because it's otherworldly, right? This is, this is only something that the Holy Spirit can work in us. But imagine if, if we committed to live this way and see the image of God in every other person and live out of the renewed image of Christ in us, how could we change our homes and our workplaces and, and our streets and our neighborhoods? Some of the leadership at my old church in St. Louis uh, they noticed that there was violence escalating in the neighborhood. And young men uh, were getting guns and going back and forth. So the leadership sat down and began to pray. What does it look like for us to step in here? And they prayed for a few days, and then they noticed that there were several young men gathering on the street. And they decided to go and talk with them. And you can think about what they might say. This, this group of leaders, a small group of leaders, both black men and white men, going up to these young men, and you could think like, hey, cut it out and get out of here. Go make something of your life. Stop what you're doing or we'll call the cops. But that's not what the leaders of the church said. They humbly walked up to these young men and said, hey, we know what's happening. We see things escalating, and we're concerned about you. We don't want you to get hurt. We don't want anyone else to get hurt. You are important to God, and therefore you are important to us. 
you see how seeing the image of God in someone else and seeing it in yourself helps you respond differently. Jesus wants us to live a certain way, but to believe the image of God exists in each person and in ourselves. But also he wants us to believe in the common grace of God. In verse 45b, Jesus says, For he, God, causes his son to rise on the evil, evil people, and the good, the good people, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is talking about a biblical doctrine called the common grace of God. And the common grace of God is basically, though humanity shakes their fists at God and say, we're going to live our life the way we want to, God still provides them air to breathe. God still provides rain for sinners who have not repented because he wants them to be fed. God still holds the universe intact for people who are shaking their fists at God. God makes their hearts beat even though they hate him. That is called the common grace of God, and it's not just reserved for Christians. It's for everybody, and it's part of God's love for his enemies. And so Jesus goes on to say, or right before this, he says in verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. In other words, when we love beyond limits, when we see the common grace of God for all humanity, and we reflect that to our enemies, we are being like God. We are bearing the family name of a God who loves his enemies. We are acting as sons and daughters for the very God who loved us when we were enemies. And see, that's the thing. That's where Jesus is going with all this. It's not just about the image of God. It's not just about the common grace of God. It's about the gospel of God, the good news of God's love for us through Jesus Christ. In verse 46 through 48, Jesus wants us to see how uncommon God's love is. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. Tax collectors were like the worst people in society at that time. And Jesus is saying, even they love people that they hang out with. But if you only greet your brothers and sisters, what are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. And then he ends with this verse in 48 that says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is Jesus saying? Human love always has limits, but for those who believe in the good news of God, a God who loves beyond limits, a God who will sacrifice of himself for his enemies, they're actually empowered to reflect his character. How does God love his enemies? Jesus, the very one who's teaching us. Jesus, the the one who went to the cross on our behalf. God's greatest love for you is that while you were an enemy of God, Jesus was sent to die for your sins so that you could be reconciled. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. 
but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, while we were rebels shaking our fists, Christ died for us. And so Jesus is calling us to believe some things about who we are and who God is, but ultimately this, he's calling us to himself. He's calling us to live a certain way and to believe certain things, but he's calling us into relationship with him most deeply. You see, listen to what happened to him and see if it sounds familiar to what he's taught us today. When he was arrested, he didn't resist. When he was brought to court, he spoke to his enemies in truth and love. When he was beaten publicly and humiliated, he did not retaliate. When he was forced to the cross to die as a criminal, though he was sinless, he looked down on his accusers and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You sinned against God. Jesus loves you. You shook your fist at God as his enemy, but he still sent his son. You asked for forgiveness and grace, and Jesus freely gives you himself, all of himself, so that you will have grace and love and forgiveness forever. Jesus calls us to live a certain way because he's called us to himself who already lives that way. Who already lives that way. And that's exactly what this table is about. We're not called to a religious ceremony here. We're being called to Jesus. We're being called to Jesus. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. This is about what's to happen to me. This is what my enemies are going to do to me. This is my body broken for you. In the same way, Jesus took the cup, which represent the blood that was about to be spilled from his body, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. There's something unusual that we should see in this table as Jesus calls him to his, him, us to himself. And it's this. On our own, we are enemies of God. The only hope we have is what's represented in this table. That if Jesus didn't live out what he just taught us to live, there would be no hope for us. There'd be no forgiveness. There'd be no grace for, for sinners who shake their fists at God. There would be no love. But this table reminds us that there is love. And there is grace and there is forgiveness for all of your sin when you trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.